The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Isaiah chapter 64 this evening. Isaiah chapter 64. Most of you have been with us uh, for a number of Wednesday nights. Some of you are uh, newer with us this evening. We've been walking through uh, the book of Isaiah now for a number of weeks, and we are making our way all the way to the final chapters in the few weeks that lie ahead. Isaiah chapter 64 this evening, uh, walking through chronologically uh, the Old Testament prophets, uh, studying them in light of their historical context, which is so helpful uh, to understand what exactly it is that they are writing, and then therefore understanding it rightly in light of its history context historically being able to apply it in Christ to us today. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, you're familiar I hope with this verse, godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, It is a verse that is uh, what I would encourage, short verse, the verse you ought to have memorized, a verse you ought to strive uh, every day to live by, that God uh, spoken to my heart powerfully with it many years ago, and it's always a struggle, of course, in our lives to truly pursue godliness as a believer and, and truly being content in the Lord, no matter what life situation comes, uh, to know it comes by His sovereign hand, to know that every need will be met by His sovereign hand, to know that every trial and burden that comes is at, at work in our lives for our eternal good is eternal glory. Uh, through his sovereign hand. Godliness with contentment is great gain. However, I think our hearts are so sinful and tricky that even when we begin to grasp contentment in our lives, it's very easy for contentment, which is a very good thing, to turn into complacency, which is a bad thing. It's easy for the peace of God that we ought to strive after in our lives to turn into apathy in our lives. Uh, it's funny that the deceitfulness of the human heart, we can, we can sin by being so discontent with things we ought not to be discontent about, being envious and jealous of other situations or the possessions of other people, that, that even when we finally come to a place of contentment, it's not long that we can slip into a place of, of complacency in our supposed contentment. And it is a a danger upon every one of our hearts as we who are Christians who have been believers for a while and we come to a deeper understanding of the sovereignty of God in our lives and a a greater faith even in Him and His work in our life that it's not long that Satan begins to tempt us with complacency and with apathy. Uh, That we very quickly move from a right contentment in the Lord and a right peace of the Lord within our hearts to a place of such familiarity with the things of God such familiarity with the great truths of God's Word that it leads us to habit, it leads us to complacency, it leads us to even apathy. Uh, Forgive me, but I grew up in the 90s and country music was on the radio all the time. And as I was thinking of this message even tonight, uh, Joe Diffie's song, I think, puts it so well, the line in it, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. That there is... Something, I think, within every person and the comfort that we have, especially in the United States of America, that we can get so comfortable in the here and now, so content in a wrong way, so complacent in our daily living at the way that things are, that 
that things that ought to bother us no longer do. The burdens that ought to be upon our heart no longer are because our concerns have been narrowed to our comforts. And as our comforts are met, we know heaven's good. We know it's a place that will be better than the here and now. We want to go there, but there's, there's something within us that says, I want to live a little longer in the here and now because we are not rightly burdened with the here and now as we ought to be. What we're going to look at tonight in Isaiah chapter 64, the title of the, the message even tonight, Holy Dissatisfaction. It's a chapter that expresses to us, even in godly contentment with godly rest and peace upon our hearts, that there, there are some things about this life, in this life, that we ought to not be satisfied with. Because it is a sinful, broken world, and because we still are sinful, broken people. That there are things in this life that, that we ought to be discontent with. That we ought to be longing and yearning for a day when they are different than they are now. Holy dissatisfaction. Holy discontent. Isaiah 64 is a prayer by the prophet Isaiah. He, he's placing himself with the people of God giving this prayer before God, a prayer of holy dissatisfaction with the life that now was for Isaiah and the people of God. And it begins with a plea to God. Look to verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. God, that you would show up to change what is so wrong within this world and what is so wrong within us. Oh, God, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that you would show up and make it all right as it is supposed to be, rend the heavens, come down. Isaiah, if you've been with us, you know is writing before the Babylonian captivity, but the latter portion of the book especially is written prophetically as if Isaiah were in the captivity with those that were taken back into Babylon. Israel, the land of Judah, Jerusalem laid waste, the temple destroyed, everything that God had lavished them with in the promised land now demolished, and the people of God either killed in that attack or those that survived brought into the Babylonian captivity, or a small remnant, as we'll see in the book of Jeremiah, uh, remains there in the promised land, but not many, and they're left in poverty and in weakness. Isaiah is writing, prophetically of that day and age, expressing this prayer from the people of God to the Lord, seeking His intervention, seeking His salvation, expressing even this, this holy dissatisfaction with what they saw, what had transpired, and even what had happened within their own hearts, within their own sinfulness. If you go back to chapter 62, before we read through this, to understand the, the, the flow of the uh, few chapters we've been looking at here at the end of, of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 62, verses 6 and 7. Uh, a couple of weeks ago we looked at this passage, but, but it says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent. God has promised the restoration of Zion, and he's saying, I've set my watchmen. And they're on the wall, and this is an interesting verse, verse 7. Give him, meaning the Lord, capital H, give God no rest until God establishes, till he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. 
And so Isaiah has been exhorted to be this watchman lifting up proclamations, sounding the alarm about the injustices and the evil that he sees to the Lord in prayer, beseeching God to fulfill the promises that he's made to restore Zion, to restore Jerusalem. It was a plea to pray, to turn to God with the injustices of this life and to seek, based upon his promises, the day where he truly restores, where he truly brings justice, where he truly judges the wicked. Chapter 64 is the application of chapter 62, verses 6 and 7. We have here the prayer that is being brought before God, not letting God rest until what God has promised is established. Let's read it and we'll walk back through it tonight, just applying some things that we ought to have discontent about. That we ought to be, that we ought not to, how would I word it, that ought to bother us. That's a good way to word it. Things in this life that ought to bother us. That it's actually not right when they don't bother us. Chapter 64, we'll read through the entirety of the chapter and walk back through it tonight. Verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts, acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteous, who remembers you and your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade like as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are potter, and all we are are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Some things in life that we ought to not be satisfied in. Notice first in verses 1 through 5a, the discontent with the blindness of this world. 
a discontent, a dissatisfaction, something that is not right, that does not set right with us because it is not right in this world around us, the blindness that has so taken over the world that is all around us. Isaiah begins this prayer to God, not looking inwardly, but looking at an examination of the, the peoples around him, especially the enemies of God, the adversaries of God, seeing their wickedness and seeing even what was their prosperity in their wickedness, and seeking, God, when are you going to come down? When are you going to uh, open up the eyes, even if that's through your ending final judgment, open up the eyes of, of all of these peoples that are mocking you and that are slandering you and that are living as if you are not. And so the prayer begins, Oh, that word, it's the, the word that ought to define every one of our prayers. It's a, a word of, a, of longing and yearning, of a heart desire. Oh, oh, Lord, that you would rend the heavens. That you would tear open the skies for all to see. That you, God, holy God of all creation, that you would come down. That the mountains might shake at your presence. Uh, a picture of, of even the, the strength of the mountains themselves being shaken by the, the glory of God coming down to make Himself known and to judge wickedness in this earth as fire burns brushwood. And to think of a raging forest fire and the, the, the consuming nature of that fire where as fire causes water to boil, you put a, a pot on an on a open flame and let it heat up and it, it simmers up and begins to boil and to boil over even. All of this an imagery of God and His glory descending upon humanity in order to make things right that are wrong. Especially in order to judge the adversaries of God and God's people. Isaiah is looking at the world around him. And he's looking at the prosperity even of the Babylonians who have uh, taken over the Israelites. He's looking at all the other pagan groups and their immoral practices and their idolatry. And he's saying, God, will you rend the heavens, come down, make right all that is wrong in, in the world that is around us. Why? Because they didn't know God's name, verse 2. To make your name known to your adversaries. They didn't know the name of God, that meaning they didn't know who God was, even though He is the God who mightily has revealed Himself, even though He is the God that the knowledge of Him, as Romans says, is written upon the heart of man. Man rather chose to worship the creation over the Creator. There is no knowledge of God before them, and therefore, in that deceived condition, they do all sorts of wickedness. Because they don't know God. Why is it that the church house isn't crowded tonight? Because there's a lot of people that don't know the name of God. They don't know God as they're called to know God. As we and you hopefully know God tonight. And it's brought you here because you know the name of God. They do what they do and they act like they act. Because they don't know His name. And he says, take the nations, that the nations may tremble at your presence. That when you really come to 
know the name of God and you really get a glimpse of God and His glory and His might and in His majesty, it does not cause you to go, goodness, I am such a good, powerful person before Him. No, no you tremble in His presence because He is God Almighty. When you come to know the name of God, the God who is the one who created you and created all things, a God of infinite power, a God of holy perfection, you tremble in His presence. The world around us does not know God, therefore the world around us does not tremble at God. Psalm chapter 99 turned there. As I quote Psalm 36.1 to you, Psalm 36.1, speaking of the, trans, uh, uh, the iniquities, transgressions of the wicked, it says they do these deeds because there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, why is it that the sinner sins? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. Why is it that we sin when we sin? Because in that moment, we also become blinded and deceived, and there is no right trembling of God, no right fear of God before our eyes. Psalm 99 is a a powerful psalm exalting the power of God, and it is a call for all people to tremble before His presence. The Lord reigns. What is the response? Let the people tremble. The nations, the peoples. Because God reigns, people before Him tremble in light of His majesty and power and glory. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. He is holy. And this God, this King, His strength, also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship, not, not above Him, but you worship at His footstool because He is holy. He alone is the holy God of all the universe. And we are nothing compared to who He is. And we, as we are even graced with a glimpse of Him and a knowledge of His name, we do not exalt ourselves in His presence We don't then, after coming to know Him, live a life in disobedience before Him. No, the right response to a holy God in the the grace of catching a glimpse of Him is trembling, is fear of God, a right fear of God that leads to obedience before God. They did not know God, and they did not therefore tremble before God. And so Isaiah, back to Isaiah chapter 64, is crying out, God, would you split wide the heavens and reveal yourself? And it really is a cry out of God's uh, calling here for God's judgment to come upon the enemies of Israel that would be a part of His work of restoring Zion, of restoring Jerusalem. Isaiah in verses 3 and 4 and 5 reflects back upon the, the revelations and workings of God in time past. He says, when you did awesome things, thinking of all the stories even of the Old Testament that come before this time frame, thinking of the plagues of Egypt, thinking of the Red Sea crossing, thinking of the cloud that led the people of Israel by day, the pillar of fire by night, the manna that came, um, the rock from which water came, 
the entry into the promised land, all the victories of the miracles of God, the walls of Jericho coming down, all the divine interactions that God had with His people, showing His splendor and might and power and sovereignty over them. He says, you you did awesome things. And Israel had now gotten to a place where they no longer remembered the holiness of God. They no longer remembered the name of God. They no longer even were trembling before God. He says, for which we did not look. You came down and the mountain shook at your presence. That's a reference to Mount Sinai where God gave His law to Moses. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has I, I have seen a God besides you who acts for one who waits for Him. The, the mercies of God in time past for His people when they would turn to the Lord and in, in, in righteous obedience wait patiently for God's interaction or intervention. He says, he, he recalls to memory, God, you are the one and only God, even though this nation has turned to idolatry. You're the one who acts for him who waits for you. You're the one, verse 5, in the beginning of verse 5, who, who you meet him who rejoices and does righteous, who remembers you in your ways. He, he remembers the mighty acts of God in time past. And that's an assurance in the present even that God... You are such a God who can do what you've done again. You can bring divine judgment as you have in time past. You are a God who is able. You're a God who's sovereign. You're a God who takes care of all who turn to you in your grace and in your mercy, who seek righteousness before you. Isaiah longed for God to show himself again as he had in time past to his people. He, he first, in these first few verses, is showing a great dissatisfaction with the way things were in the world around him. He, he was bothered by the injustices and the idolatry and the wickedness and the blindness of the world that lied all about the people of God. Do you have a holy dissatisfaction with this world? There's a question of application tonight. Are you comfortable in this world? If you are, there's a problem there. Now, we ought to have the peace of God that passes all understanding. But we ought to never be comfortable in this life and in this world to the point where we make it our home as if this is all that will be. There ought to be a discontent with the way that things are in this life. There ought to be a burden upon our hearts for the glory of God and for the name of God to be known, for the people of this earth even to rightly tremble before God in who He is. You know, I just think to all the latest just moral craziness that's going on in our, in our country. And the thing that just makes me most perplexed is this obsession with, with drag queens and library readings to children. And even I saw, I don't watch the CMT garbage, but I saw a little uh, article on the, the CMT awards and the whole celebration of, of just the whole life that is so, so slanderous to God our Creator. 
Say, God, it doesn't matter how you created me. I'll be what I want to be and do whatever I want to do, no matter how wicked and immoral or twisted. And in our society's not only acceptance of it, but celebration of it. And totally flipping right and wrong, upside down, to where now to, to simply portray fruit, uh, truth from God's Word, even with a compassionate heart saying that that's not good for that person even. Like that will only lead to greater darkness in their heart and greater confusion and greater lostness in their their heart and in their life and to speak it compassionately and say it's best to find the forgiveness of God in your life and to be what he's created you to be and and to not be so slanderous in the the face of God your creator and making a mockery of who you he's designed you to be to speak that sort of truth now is narrow-minded and bigoted and you are hateful for for even saying what I've just said it ought to not sit right with us. And it doesn't mean that we get on our pedestal and our soapbox as if we are better, as if we are righteous and have it all figured out. We're about to get there. I know we aren't, but it does mean that the, the things that are wrong in this life ought to bother us. And when we become comfortable with the sinfulness of the world around us, we have gotten to a place that is not right before God. When the sins of the culture around us do not bother us, and we watch it on TV and laugh at it, discontent with the blindness of this world, oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down words of Habakkuk, how long, oh Lord, how long is this going to go on like it is? The final words of our scripture, even in the book of Revelation, even so, come, come Lord Jesus, are you longing and desiring for him to return to make right all the wrong of this life, all, not only the immoralities and wickedness, but the, the wickedness of the injustices of this life and the taking advantage of the poor and the weak and the those that are hurting because of those that, that are more powerful than they are, more influential than they are, that there is a day when Christ is returning and He will judge and He will make all things new. Are we longing for that day? We ought to be. Isaiah was. And Isaiah brought it before the Lord. Second, secondly, the second dissatisfaction, verses 5b through 7. Discontent with the sinfulness of your heart. <laughs> Told you we'd get there. Isaiah began by looking around at the world, at the enemies of God, and in frustration at their blindness to the name of God and their lack of trembling before God, he called for the judgment of God, rightly so. The sins of this life of people around us, of a culture that is wayward from God, ought to bother us. It never ought to sit right with us. It, it ought to be something that leads us to dissatisfaction, to discontentment. But as Isaiah thought of the world around him, he also could not, could not stop there. He also had to turn inwardly and examine himself in light of that same judgment by which he was judging the world around him and look at what he finds. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. He includes himself in this as 
even the prophet of God, he recognizes he is a part of sinful humanity. He's a part even of the sinfulness of the, the people of God in this era. He says, you are indeed angry, for we have sinned, and in these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. There's not only a wicked world around us that needs the correction of God. We need it. All have sinned. Romans chapter 3 is heavily based upon the words of this chapter. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone turned to his own way. We need to be saved. Verse 6, but we are all like an unclean thing. Just as we in a right way can see the wickedness of the world around us and grieve at it and it not sit right with us, If we, in true humility, examine our own lives, the same judgment will be declared about our own hearts. Because none are what they ought to be before a holy, righteous God. He says, all we are like an unclean thing, even as the covenant people of God. And then a verse we quote often. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. That even the best that we can present before God does not make up for the wrong of our lives, the wrong of our heart, the sinfulness of our heart. All, even the best that we can give before God, never justifies us before Him, never makes up for the wrong that we are. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. To continue even that imagery of a leaf, as he thinks of a leaf, fading and falling off a tree and then the wind that would blow and come along and just take those leaves and send them whatever direction the wind is blowing. That is what the sinful passions of our heart do. They've led us astray from God and we're blown by the wind of of deceitfulness, by the wind of of our sinful desires and passions. There is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, You have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. The judgment of God was coming not only on the enemies of God, but it came through the Babylonian captivity upon the very people of God to lead them to repentance. Discontent with the sinfulness of your heart. Is there a holy dissatisfaction with the sins of your life? You know, we're really good at letting the sins of a culture around us bother us, aren't we? We are. Or maybe it's just me. We're really good at letting the sins of the culture around us bother us. But we're really good at not letting the sins of our own heart bother us. Does your sin bother you? When's the last time that you felt true conviction over a slanderous word you've spoken or over a wrong thought that you ought not to have had over whatever it is that you've done that is sinful in the eyes of holy God. Does your sin bother you as it should? As it ought to bother you? Isaiah recognized he was a sinner in need of God's salvation. He had been led astray even in all the righteousness that he could present before God, none of it able to justify him. He was one, even with the people of God, we need to be saved. All our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. No one 
calls on your name. No one stirs himself up to take hold of you. I won't read Romans chapter 7 for the sake of time tonight, but I encourage you to read that later as Paul even just expresses a, a great dissatisfaction with the sinful nature within him. The things that I would do, I don't do. The things that I want to do, I, I end up, or the things I don't want to do, he says, I end up doing. And at the, the end there, those latter verses, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. He, he fought with the sinful passions of his own heart. Who will deliver me from this? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thank, thank God, Christ Jesus our Lord. There is redemption, there is forgiveness, there is salvation, there is strength to overcome in Christ. We'll get there. But Paul had a great discontent with the sin of his life. Too many believers today, we love to harp about the sins of culture. We love to, you know, try to take the, the speck out of others' eyes, but we don't like the beam in our own. Worry, yes, it ought to bother us about the injustices of this life and the sins of this life, but it also ought to bother us even more so about the sins of our own life. Is there a holy dissatisfaction with the sins of your heart? And then thirdly, lastly, verses 8 through 12, notice thirdly, a discontent with the distance of your God. The distance of your God, not, not that He has moved away from you because you were seeking Him and, and He pulled back as you sought after Him. No, the distance of God because you have turned your back and turned towards sin and been led astray and God in a means of making you realize just how severe your sin is, God does take a step back. And he is crying out for God who has dis- distanced Himself to come near once again because God... Um, even in an act of grace, has distanced himself from his people and this Babylonian captivity in order that they may come to see the sinfulness of their sin and be led to repentance and confession and restoration where he does come close. We'll see it in a moment. Let's read it. But now, O Lord, even as Isaiah's frustrated at the sinfulness of life around him, crying out for the judgment of God, which brings him to an acknowledgement even of his own sinfulness before holy God and the people of God's sinfulness before God. He says, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. He calls to remembrance the relationship that God had established with His people even in their waywardness. He says, God, even now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. You're, you're the God who's sovereign over us. And we, we even submit now to you as a, a lump of clay in your hands to make of us what you want. It's a humble, broken submission before God. And all we are, the work of your hand. God at work to make of them what Isaiah hoped he would make of the people of God. He says, do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, for we are all your people. He's crying out for the mercy of God here, for the the grace of God, 
for God to once again draw near to His people is now a humble, broken acknowledgement and confession of sin has been made and repentance now turning back in submission to God. You are the potter, we are the clay. Don't forget even now you are our Father, O Lord. You are the one who has called us. You are the one who has made this covenant with us. He says, indeed, look. Verse 10, your holy cities are all a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. It had been decimated. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. The promised land, the land of, of, of fullness and blessing laid in desolation. And he cries out, God, will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? A plea of God once again to turn from His judgment and to draw near to His people in grace and in mercy. Do you have a holy discontent with your relationship with God? I need to define that, right? Because you're thinking, what do you mean? I'm supposed to be at peace with God. Yes, yes, yes. But there's a danger in getting so comfortable, so complacent, so apathetic in our walk with the Lord that, that there ought to always be something that says within us, I want to know God more. Like I want to be closer to God than I am right now. A, a dissatisfaction with the status quo. It's so easy to put things on cruise control. So easy to put things on the, I've developed a good spiritual habit, this is what I do, and I just continue in it, and I don't pursue God as I ought to be. I'm not burdened to know God to a greater degree, because truth is, I know Him better than others, and that's good enough. It's so easy to slip into that mentality. And these words, for me, were a great reminder. No, there ought to always be a dissatisfaction with the distance of God from us, no matter how close He is to us. But there ought to always be a yearning upon our heart to know Him to a greater degree, to grow in the, the grace of God, to grow in the knowledge of God, commanded so much through the New Testament even. I just want to read the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He again is our example. In verses 12-14, through 14, Paul even writes, he says, Not that I've already attained or am already perfect, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things are which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Undoubtedly, there was a holy dissatisfaction that drove Paul to daily pursue the Lord, to daily take up His cross and follow Christ, to think of Sunday even, the beatitude, to hunger and thirst for righteousness daily in his life, pursuing a greater closeness to God. There ought to be some things in life that bother us. Even as we are living godliness with contentment before the Lord, there ought to be a discontent with the blindness of this world around us. There ought to be a discontent with the sinfulness of our hearts. There ought to be a discontent with the distance of God, no matter how close He is. We ought to be yearning and longing and striving to know Him more, to know Him better. 
Oh, that you would rend the heavens. That you would come down. God fulfilled this. And Jesus is coming. And Christ, even in His death, the sky darkens and the earth shakes. There's a fulfillment in His first coming. Even if we go to the virgin birth of the, the divinity God, the Son coming down, um, there's a fulfillment there. He came. And there's a fulfillment yet to come in His second coming where He will come not riding that donkey into Jerusalem, but riding that horse, that white horse, a sign of power when He comes to judge the living and, and the dead. What did Isaiah do with this dissatisfaction? We'll close with this. Did Isaiah get filled with anxiety and fear about the world around him? As so many believers do when they consume Fox News day in and day out. You get so filled with frustration that it so often can boil over in sinfulness, right? Because we get so frustrated with what did, what did Isaiah do? Did he just soak it all in and dwell on it in a way that led him to anxiety and to sin in his own life and frustration? No. Did Isaiah get, woe is me in deep, dark depression and not follow the Lord in obedience because he just saw the doom and gloom of everything? No, no, no. What is it that Isaiah is doing here? He's being the watchman on the tower. And he's seeing all that's wrong in the world as he looked around him, even as he looked in his own life and in the, the people of God and the situation that was transpiring. And what did he do with it all? He, he turned to the Lord in prayer. He, this is a prayer before God. Oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens. He, he brought the, the anxieties and the, the injustices and the concerns of all that's going on in life, even his own sinfulness, before God turned it over to the Lord in prayer, sounding the alarm before the captain who has promised He will intervene. He will deliver. He will save His people. He will restore Zion. It was all based on the promises of God. And that same duty and responsibility, Isaiah, is yours and mine tonight. What do you do with all the wrong that you see around you? What do you do with all the wrong that you know is within? it before Him. And you plead before Him for His grace and mercy. And you even make a plea before Him for His righteousness to be known, for His name to be known, that the peoples of this earth would one day rightly know, rightly serve, rightly worship Him. And so as we close tonight, I want to ask of you to do just that. And whatever it is that's, that's bothering you, that's rightly bothering you, turn to God and take it to Heavenly Father, we come to You. Lord, we do pray that You would work in all of our hearts. Help us to be bothered by the things that ought to bother us. Lord, the contentment in our life never gets to a place of complacency and apathy where things that ought to not sit right with us do. Lord, we are so easily blinded and deceived. Keep us from that. Convict us where conviction is needed we look to a culture around us, as we look to even our hearts within us, and help us to turn to You in humble, repentant, brokenness and submission. Lord, work tonight, I pray, 
humble all of us, but especially if it be one who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray tonight uh, that they would turn to you. They would come to see what you did for them at Calvary through Jesus dying upon a cross for their sins. They would turn and call out to you that you have saved them because of Jesus. Lord, we know in your grace and mercy, by your promise, that you will work, I pray tonight, 